episode. Today we're going to be talking about the book A Russian Dance of Death, which was written by Dirk Gora, which was a pseudonym for Dietrich Newfield. So the author uh, had to use a pseudonym because after the Russian Civil War, the NKVD and other kind of Soviet intelligence apparatuses would kidnap and uh, kill any critics of the Soviet regime who actually managed to make it out of Russia. So it's like a safety precaution. Uh, Neufeld, who became the languages professor E.C. Pepperdine, just changed his name when he wrote the book. I wanted to talk about this book and to make this a free episode. You know, I, I have total contempt for free, free subscribers, but, you know, I, and I, I really don't like to, like, comment on, like, ongoing discussions and feuds because I, I think that, like, a lot of this stuff doesn't really matter. But I was kind of seeing a resurgence of uh, a strain of thought that I thought had kind of died on the American right. And so... I wanted to bring up this book in particular because this book in particular, I think, kind of repudiates what a lot of people are saying and proposing as just uh, ultimately short-sighted. So to kind of get to the um, the good part and, and spoil my thinking, the thing that kind of triggered me was a resurgence of posts of people expressing their frustration with national politics by saying, um, you know, America's over, people need to kind of retreat to a smaller scale and focus on their local communities and their friends, their family, the people they see every day, and to just kind of tune out the um, declining national situation, which often seems totally out of your control. And this is something that I spoke out a lot against when I was kind of online. And people hated me for it. I'm, I'm sure they still do. Uh, because I, you know, I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I was just like kind of tech bug man. I worked in marketing, and you know, life that's pretty dissimilar from a lot of people uh, advocating for that. And so it seemed like I was speaking about things I didn't really understand, or you know, my perspective was kind of motivated by chauvinism, right? Like I want everyone to be like me, and I, I really don't. You know, I, I I have left the Bay Area, and I moved back in with family, and I live on a farm now. I don't I don't work on a farm, which I'm sure everyone will hate too. But you know. And I have this like great rural life. And so like, I, you know, there are lots of uh, virtues of rural life. It's kind of like my living arrangement, I think is, um, I would say hope is separate from my views. Like, I, you know, I think you can kind of have a good life. Um, you can make a good life for yourself, no matter where you are, or what your situation is. And anyway, I, I hope that I'm not too biased, but I think that that line of thinking is incredibly destructive and just kind of wasteful. And uh, that brought me to A Russian Dance of Death, which, uh, you know, I do a lot of my own research. And uh, this is a book that was uh, recommended to me. And it's about a group of Dutch Mennonites in Ukraine during the Russian Civil War. And I think that it kind of really touches on a lot of things that people are proposing just because the, the problem, I think, is very rarely that people are too dumb they get a certain concept or the people are, are like acting in bad faith. You know, there are some bad actors, but most people, they're, they're reacting very reasonably. And I think that basically there's a psychological trick here at play when you, you see these constant retreats to localism. And it, I think it's a kind of a, like a platitude because oftentimes to improve your own life when you have problems, you just need to simplify your life, right? You have something that's not really adding a lot of value and so you cut it out. You know, you can cut out bad things from your diet. Your health will probably improve. I mean, just like simplifying things makes it easier to control. And if you have more control, you feel more powerful and that can make you, um, you know, that can uh, make you more successful. You have more agency. But politics is kind of different. And so even if you say, I don't care about national politics, uh, national politics is still going to care about you. And I, I think that the situation of the Dutch Mennonites in uh, the Russian Civil War is very illustrative of that phenomenon.
So I'll kind of give the cliff notes of the history and um, kind of cultural background required to understand the book. I would have qualified my remarks by saying that I'm not an expert about any of this stuff. I don't have any formal training and I don't speak Russian or Ukrainian or German or any of the relevant languages here. So this is kind of an amateur historian take. And I really encourage you to do your own research because I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that's important that I will uh, not be able to cover or will misstate or, you know, say something that's a little bit clumsy. And a year or so from now, you'll hear about me being uh, murdered by a Ukrainian, Polish, Russian, or a Romanian ultranationalist or something along those lines. So anyway, Russia and Ukraine, obviously there's a very close and complex relationship uh, going back hundreds, even thousands of years. Um, by the 1700s, Ukraine is under the control of Russia. And a lot of major cities in modern-day Ukraine, you know, the Ukrainian ethnicity and language were around. I think uh, my understanding was mostly kind of a, a rural phenomenon, like the rural peasantry. And many of the major cities in modern-day Ukraine were created as like Russian uh, colonial or imperial projects. Like a lot of them were basically frontier forts to protect Russian-controlled lands from marauding barbarians. And one of the most important leaders uh, to, to know about in the relationship between Russia and Ukraine was Catherine the Great, who invested a lot of her energy into developing Ukraine. So I know uh, statues of her are, are all over the city of Odessa, and a lot of major cities kind of like felt the touch of her influence. But one of the, the biggest components of her Ukraine policy was the importation of Dutch Mennonites. So I'm going to call them Dutch Mennonites, but I think it's important to understand that these people were, you know, in Russia for a very long time. Like, they weren't recent arrivals by the, the time of the drama, you know, the Russian Civil War. So in the late 1700s, Catherine the Great invites tons of Dutch Mennonites. I think they were mainly from East Fracture, but they're a religious minority group. They're somewhat apolitical and they're pacifists, so they're not going to make a lot of trouble for the regime. And they're also incredibly prodigious farmers. And she basically gave them free land and other incentives to move out to a largely depopulated area of Ukraine and kind of make colonies. So these people are not Slavic, they're German, and they speak German, and they have this very unique religious tradition. So they're kind of like this, you know, very small minority, but they're extremely successful out there. And, you know, that the kind of success is felt all over society. And, and Ukraine is already kind of like the breadbasket of the world. Like it's central Ukraine where the, the book takes place is one of the, the wealthiest agricultural regions on the planet. And um, so the, the Mennonites have been around for a while. And uh, Germans in general, not just Mennonites, had been an important part of the Russian imperial system for a while. Like G General Wrangel was German. There are a lot of kind of old German families that are very closely tied in with the Russian nobility. And so Germans, by the time of the Russian Civil War, had a reputation of being a loyalist ethnic group. And this is something that's very important to understand in uh, the Russian Revolution is that even though there are these big political ideas being discussed, a lot of the time, um, people's concerns are very unpolitical. And in fact, the politics are just a cover for uh, racial and ethnic tension between various groups that have been uh, you know, close together for a very long time. And then once the apparatus of the Russian imperial state went away, they were all at each other's throats. And so, you know, to lots of massacres and other bad things. The Russian Revolution was kind of precipitated by this total societal breakdown that occurred in Russia and, you know, the Tsar advocates and there's just total political chaos. And it would seem like the Mennonites who are these incredibly prodigious farmers, they're in somewhat of a remote area and they're extremely wealthy. Uh, it seemed like they would be 
in a uniquely good position to kind of capitalize on that. But their situation was greatly complicated by two major trends. The first was the rise of various nationalisms in the place of the declining uh, Russian empire. So, you know, I, I don't want it to seem like Russians were responsible for everything in Ukraine, right? Like, you know, Russians and Ukrainians, they're closely related. They're kind of fuzzy boundaries at points, but they're very distinct and they're, they're important, um, you know, differences in history and culture. And so as Russian imperial power declines, obviously the majority of the population of Ukraine, at least in most regions of Ukraine, uh, is ethnic Ukrainian. And they start wondering why they are under the yoke of um, what's very easy to see as a foreign power, you know, Russia. Why are we be, you know, if Russia is going to the dumps, why are um, we subjected to their whims? And this was like kind of a, a common phenomenon. Like the Cossacks were very important to understand in Russian history. I won't go into them here, but that's another group. They were like semi-nomadic. Like I, I want to see tribal. It's like somewhat ethnic and, and somewhat tribal. Um, but anyway, they started developing their own nationalism around this time period. And so as the like central power declines, all these regional locuses of power, which had their own elites, start to find it very easy to see, see themselves as separate from the system. And it's not like, you know, with the Russian military uh, in collapse, it's very easy for them to just kind of check out. And so a minority group like the German Mennonites, you know, they're surrounded by Slavs. They are religiously distinct. They're ethnically distinct. They're linguistically distinct. And they're rich. And everyone's getting very poor very fast and everyone's is slowly starting to starve. And so they became, you know, they became very, very lonely out there. And, you know, even though it seems like it was in a good position, you know, a lot of people became kind of hostile to the presence of all these Germans in the middle of, of Ukraine. And this was exacerbated by the fact that even though Germans had a reputation as kind of a loyalist ethnic group, and many Germans played an important role in Russian society, the cultural force of World War I included a lot of very strong anti-German sentiment. So, for instance, the Tsar's wife, Tsarina, um, she had a German background, and so people would spread all sorts of rumors about her when things went wrong, like she's intentionally sabotaging the war effort because she loves Germany so much. They actually renamed the capital St. Petersburg from St. Petersburg to Petrograd. Or that's why it has a different name in uh, a lot of books around the period. Like it was actually like the state issued an order changing the name of the capital to just sound less German. Like it's kind of nonsensical. And the German Mennonites, even though they were pacifist and, and largely loyal to the government, um, as the war starts going badly for Russia in some ways, like the World War I wasn't as much a, a disaster for Russia as it's often made out to be. But as the war starts going badly I mean, in many ways, uh, the government becomes kind of hostile to them, too, just because they're German. And so I think there were at least early plans to relocate the Mennonites to Siberia. So there's a lot of anti-German sentiments floating around, and there's a lot of kind of ethnic resentment and even cl and, uh, and class enemy floating around as well. So the German Mennonites, it seems like they have everything going for them. But uh, when you actually look at the reality of their situation, like they were pretty lonely out there. And, you, you know, it's, uh, it's bad to be lonely in the middle of a societal collapse. And so back to the book, A Russian Dance of Death. The book kicks off in 1919. The author is staying at a friend's house in a village that's, I think, like maybe 100 miles from his home. And it's another uh, German Mennonite village. Again, like it, they're, they're all farmers. I think it was like 100 villages or something like that. And it's, it's um, you know, thousands of people. So it's a very sophisticated um, 
a, you know, network of communities. Exactly the sort of thing that, that people say is ideal in the, the hellish future we're looking at. And uh, the book is set up as the author's diary. I assume it was adapted from a, a diary he had at the time. And the area he's staying in had been mostly untouched by the war, right? The, the Russian Civil War lasted from like 1917 to 1921. That's like you know, generally when people have agreed, uh, like the begin and, and end of, of organized uh, resistance to, to the Bolshevik dictatorship lasted. They made it through mostly unscathed. They are self-sufficient. They are geographically isolated. But then one day troops show up in uh, the village and they, it's, it's a really great effect because they don't even know who the soldiers are at first, right? Like no one has uniforms. And I think that this is kind of important to understand. Even though the factions nominally have political ideologies behind them, it's mostly just like young men with guns who now have a license to steal and are, are a law unto themselves. And he just describes the, the terror that the general... Uh, populace felt, right? Like they, you know, the Mennonites were pacifists, but like even if they were armed, like there's nothing they could really do to resist. Hundreds of armed soldiers descending on their town one day. And the guys, at least at first, just break in and steal everything and move on. And they later uh, figure out the soldiers belong to the Black Army of Nestor Marknow, who's a, a Ukrainian anarchist. And I think he's still pretty influential in anarchist thought. Like, he probably commanded the biggest anarchist army of all time. We're calling it an army, like an anarchist army, like it's a little bit of a loose term. But, like, he commanded a, a large number of forces and, and did a lot of damage. And the guy was just, like, a complete monster. And I think, you know, he had particular hatred. You know, there was strong anti-German sentiment among the general public. But uh, not real himself. I think as a child, a German Mennonite, like, kicked him in the face, like, when he was, like, 10 years old. And he remembered that. Like, you know, the, the Mennonite was, like, riding a horse and, and bickered, you know, he said something to him or pissed him off in some way. And the guy just kicked, you know, the little kid in the face. Not a very nice thing to do. Matmil, you know, remembered that for his entire life and just had this, you know, searing hatred of Mennonites. And so his bands of raiders would kill pretty much anyone who wasn't Ukrainian or who wasn't an Ericus. But they were particularly cr uh, cruel to the Mennonites. It's this peaceful, idyllic village. The guys there are peaceful. They never, they didn't really do anything to anyone. And they, they have intentionally tried to stay out of politics. And yet there are, are suddenly besieged by hundreds of people may have no hope to resist them. And at least at first, it's just robberies. And the guys leave and they kind of try to pick up the pieces. But later they return and they basically, uh, the, the anarchists basically enslave the Mennonites. And I think that this is the most revealing part of the book because he describes interacting with the anarchists. Basically, you know, they had like a loose organization under Machno and they would board troops in various people's homes. And, you know, the, the people who lived there would have to give them food and like let them sleep in, in all the rooms and, you know, are basically their house servants. The offer got to know the anarchists really well because they're like living in his house all of a sudden. And the most revealing part of it is uh, that like everyone was just kind of a huge piece of shit. And like that's kind of the thing that you can't escape from in these social collapse scenarios. You know, you can get away from a lot of things in society, but you kind of can't get away from these like psychic strangleholds that people fall under. There's one quote that I want to read from the book but where I think he, he summarizes this really well. 
The Ukrainian peasant has become rebellious in consequence of a constant change of regime. Is it not true that for two years he has had to endure with almost every new moon a new government? After this and very soon there will not be an administration which can easily gain his respect. Certain moral conceptions which should underline any form of stake have been overthrown. And that's like kind of it. It's like the, the moral conceptions of the people have, the like underline of functioning society are just gone. And you have all these people who, you know, just a few years ago were probably pretty normal, acting in the most depraved and insane ways possible. Like all these people are being incredibly cruel to the Mennonites. The Mennonites didn't do anything to anyone, right? They were staying out of the Russians of war. You know, there's that guy who kicked Makhno in the face. But I'm sure that the, the Mennonites probably didn't have too bad of a reputation, other than that they were rich and uh, a country that was increasingly poor. And people just kept constantly inventing reasons to persecute them and steal from them and even kill them. And, you know, that's, it's, it's like, kind of surreal because it seems like everyone there, he's interacting with, I'm sure he's a bit biased, is just so stupid. And like, they're, they're like, you know, you have to have food. Like you guys are, you know, the Mennonites are rich. Like you, you have to have food, give us your food. And the, the people who are demanding food for them don't understand that they don't, that the Mennonites don't have any more food because they were just robbed the day before. Right. And so they're, they're adamant that Mennonites are rich, which is generally true. But even after like they, they've subjugated the Mennonites, they refuse to they're basically like carbdo culting their mental image of Mennonites. Like they're still not letting up. And when they have totally stolen everything from these people, except the clothes off their backs, which like they even take people, like demand people's boots, like we're just walking around. They still demand more and more. And they, they like develop all these weird rumors that like the Mennonites actually have, have tons of caches of gold buried around their houses. And they'll, you know, threaten to execute people if they want to dig up their gold. And, and it's all just kind of fake. And... Essentially, they dislike these people already, and they're constantly inventing new reasons to dislike them to kind of justify these um, feelings, which they, I think, subconsciously knew were kind of unreasonable. And it's 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 really interesting. Like, it really is interesting to see, like, you know, there's like a, a civil society collapse. It's like the government is overthrown. Like, that's, you know, that's bad. But really, the thing that makes the situation unsalvageable is the fact that, like, people are mentally overthrown, right? Like, you know, they can't behave normally anymore. They are seeing the world in a fundamentally distorted way, and everything is, is suddenly acceptable to them. And eventually, the author kind of breaks the spell that many of the anarchists he's with are under by just kind of openly saying, I bet he knows exactly what they want, and, like, that they're, they're actually just pieces of shit. So it's pretty funny, like, you know, they, they kill people who, it's like that, like, you know, hunter instinct where, like, if you run from a bear, it, like, instinctually has to chase you. And so that, you know, all these, these anarchists behave in these totally predatory ways towards people who are kind of, like, helpless. But they basically are just looking for excuses to kill male Mennonites, like, for no reason all the time. And so the author is accused several times of having buried a machine gun. And like the, the, the accusations are kind of nonsensical. And they're like, all right, you buried a machine gun. Come with us. We're going to put you on trial. And he knows that if he gets put on trial, they're just going to execute him. And the author is just like, I know that you just plan to execute me. You know that I didn't bury a machine gun. And just saying that out loud kind of breaks the spell that they're under, which is very funny. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't funny for him, but it's, it's I, I think, I guess, revealing in that like it really is like they're under a spell and like they're, they're suddenly like cargo culting everything.
So like just saying that someone has buried a machine gun gives you permission to kill them. And they're not really even thinking about the accusations. And when they actually think about the accusations, then they'll back off. And it's kind of like a state of mass delusion. And you get this like kind of mass, what's the, uh, it's like the mental disorder. It's like oppositional defiant disorder, right? Where they just hate everything now. They hate everything that's good. Kind of like, you know, a lot of people do today where they see someone who's like healthy and happy and they like feel like visceral repulsion to them. And so they like hate normal culture and educating people. Like they'll kill professors and like, you know, keep like, like people who are seen as like bourgeois or, or whatever. But the author of the book is a teacher. And so one of his friends tells the anarchist, because he knows that you know, they might kill him if they find out that he's a teacher, that he's actually a poet and that he can write poetry for them. And the anarchist, because they know that poetry is this like popular tool to express a dissidence, love that he's a poet. And they're constantly trying to like, find ways to, to ask him to write poetry for them, but they don't even seem to know what poetry is. Rather than conceptually, they can't under, they don't even understand the thing that they like, and they don't listen to poetry. They just know that poetry is like important in like leftist circles. And so for Snarners, they ask him to write poetry about how much he likes Machno, and they don't even kind of get to like know at like, of course, he doesn't like the anarchists who are in his house robbing him and like killing all his friends. So it's like a kind of a ridiculous request, but they didn't even see, they can't really even understand their own actions as like wrong. And so they're making these totally unreasonable requests. And then he tells them that he can only write poetry in other languages. And it's this kind of like nonsensical refusal Right, or I guess non-refusal, where like he can't write, he for some reason he can't write poetry in Ukrainian, but they know so little about poetry conceptually that that like makes sense to them. And they're like, oh, okay, well, we know, you know, better luck next time or something like that, right? And it's just kind of ridiculous and everyone is, is talking past each other, right? It's like a, a totally holographic society. There are nonsense allegations motivated to do these totally terrible things by concepts that they, they barely themselves understand. And that, that's, again, I, I can't emphasize this enough. Most of the, the participants in these huge struggles are somewhat apolitical and are just kind of like, like psychic casualties. Like they become depraved by the breakdown in society. There's a great line that the author gives later in the book. It's described to the anarchist fad because it really was a fad. And it's like, you know, you get tens of thousands of people who are mobilized as, as combatants, but they're like motivated by like their, their most base motivations, uh, the desire to steal, the desire to hurt people who you feel of inconvenience or wronged you in some way. Um, even if the way that they wronged you is just by merely, is just by merely existing. And there's a, a great line that the author uses that um, uh, the, the author mentions just now, essentially all a society had fallen into a state of arbitrariness because there's like a psychic and moral breakdown. And I think the concept of arbitrariness in a, a societal context is, again, really important to understand because it's like the thing that you actually want to oppose. So I love General Wrangle so much. We talk all the time about General Wrangle. And one of the things that made General Wrangle so popular and so effective, it seems a little bit counterintuitive because Wrangle was actually a straight to disciplinarian and was known to, you know, hang his soldiers all the time for like looting or doing bad things to civilians. In a state of civil war, 
You know, that's really common. And a lot of the other leaders in the white army basically acted like these like medieval war bands. And when they showed up, you know, it's just like with the anarchists, if hundreds of armed soldiers show up somewhere and you don't have like an actual army to oppose them, like there's not a lot that the, the civilians there can actually do, even if they have some arms of their own. And if that's the situation, you, know, you can rob whoever you want, you can kill whoever you want, like you are the law. And so a lot of the, the white leaders would act totally without restraint. And over time, the white army, um, you know, the, the volunteer army, that's the, the kind of what the section uh, in, the, in that area of the Russian Civil War was called the, the volunteer army. And Randall was a part of that. And Randall had a very good reputation, but several other major leaders had very bad ones because when they showed up, they were just going to do whatever they want. You know, the, the idea was like the general public is full of pieces of shit. And, you know, that, you know, was kind of true at the time. But because they're pieces of shit, we can kind of do whatever we want. So it's like, yeah, we, we're an army. We're fighting the Bolsheviks. You have food. You need to give us food to, you know, for the war effort. And if you don't like it too bad. And uh, if you like back talk me, we're just going to hang you in public so people know not to backtalk us anymore. And over time, even though the public didn't really like the Bolsheviks, the whites who were in the area developed this terrible reputation. So people just support whoever like promised to fight them. And Randall avoided that problem entirely by just behaving like a normal person. And he kind of created this like bastion of normalcy around him, right? Where he's like, you know, the Russian military has nominally collapsed. The white army, you know, it was an army, but it was like this kind of loose federation of anti-Bolshevik military forces. And Randall was the only, uh, you know, one of the few people who treated it like an actual army where rank is really important. Discipline is extremely important. And the there was never an appearance of arbitrariness with him. So even when he's handing people, um, he always did it after a field court marshal. So he actually get with officers to put someone on trial for doing something. And everyone, you know, when he hanged someone, everyone knew exactly why he was hanged. Uh, there's, there's a great example of this. And, you know, I've read a bunch of memoirs about the Russian Civil War. And on um, this actual anecdote, shows up in several different memoirs because everyone heard about this, which is like means like the message was received. But Wrangell is uh, commanding a retreating force. It's, it's uh, you know, the war army has been pushed back. And so they had to evacuate a town. And the way they had planned it, there were going to be seven trains evacuating people from this town per day. And uh, when, you know, Wrangell receives word that there's only two trains going back, you know, to safety every single day. And he's like, what the hell's the holdup? And the local officer is like, it's just a total mess here. We can't sort it out. And so Wrangell takes his personal bodyguard and he goes down to the train station to see what the problem is. And it turns out that the local merchants had been paying the train conductor and some of the, the local like soldiers to allow them to evacuate their goods, like their, their stores, because they know that when the Bolsheviks enter the town, they're just going to steal everything there. So the merchants... They brought the train official to put like goods in the trains instead of people. And it's bad for the store owners of the Bolsheviks show up, but them losing money is not really as important as all the people who are going to be killed when the Bolsheviks show up. So it's, it's much more important to evacuate people. And this was like expressly forbidden by Wrangell, right? Like Wrangell issued a pretty clear order. The town is going to be evacuated. We're going to get all these civilians and soldiers to safety. Someone is defying his order. And so he, uh, like on the spot, puts the, the person who was bribed on trial because 
Uh, he had issued an order before saying that train, uh, like train engineers and people who work for the railroad are under military discipline. And so he puts these guys on trial. It's a straightforward trial. Like, did you do this? Yes, they get, you know, they did it. Several people saw them do it. Every, everyone knew that this guy did it. And he hanged him at the station. And everyone saw it and everyone knew exactly why that guy was hanged. And what do you know? You know, there were supposed to be seven trains leaving from the station. I think it was like nine that day. And so, you know, things get, you know, problems that seem unsolvable can get solved really, really quickly if people know that you mean business. But people knowing that you mean business doesn't mean that you have to act like this total goon, right? Like you can just pull out a gun and shoot this guy. And people could have made up any, you know, story for why he shot that guy. Instead, there was a public trial. Everyone knew that he broke a rule and he, you know, the, the guy who was on trial broke an actual rule, right? Randall issued a written order several months before saying exactly what would happen to you if you did the thing the, the guy did. So he wasn't confusing for anyone what happened and why it happened. And again, like, like people think that they can just kind of check out of society, but that's not the case, right? And the, the reason that Randall was so effective is he created a society around himself. Uh, everything is falling apart. Order is being totally lost, even within, you know, sections of the white army, which is supposed to be a military, like the most ordered thing imaginable. And Wrangell is like the one guy who is kind of building society out around him. And nothing that happens in his like society in miniature is happening without his control. And people, people really like to be a part of that, right? They want to be part of something that has high standards where you can kind of predict what happens next. And I think the reason that so many people are kind of went insane during this time period is you were just in a state of constant confusion, right? You could shoot someone, he could get away with it, and nothing would ever happen to you. Someone could show up at your house and kill one of your loved ones, and nothing would happen to them. And you kind of like... You know, everyone, like there are people who are like tough guys and depraved and, and prevent for it. There's one quote that I think of from um, it's a, the Johnny Depp movie, Black Mass, which is about this Irish gangster in Boston. And, you know, uh, it's a pretty good movie, actually. Um, Johnny Depp is playing Whitey Bulger, who is this very infamous organized crime figure. And the movie is kind of a biopic of him. But there's a secondary character who is also a gangster who's doing life in prison. And someone showed him the movie in prison and just asked him what he thought about it. And the guy said that, like, you know, it, it, it was good in some respects. Like, you know, Johnny Depp's a very good actor, but it was unrealistic because everyone was always shouting at each other. And in reality, no one would ever, you know, shout and like no one would, would be too rude, like at least internally, because everyone was just absolutely terrified of each other all the time because they're around, you know, these guys who are absolute cold-blooded killers all the time. And if you make a misstep, it could seem like a really small thing, but the end result could be walking into an alleyway and, and then suddenly someone just shoots you in the head. And so they existed in a kind of state of, of constant terror and arbitrariness. They're around, you know, career, like people kind of glamorize career criminals, but usually those guys are pretty mentally damaged and they're willing to do things that normal people aren't willing to do. And a lot of the times they're just scared all the time. And it's understandable why they're scared all the time. And I think that that's what's going on in society in the Russian Civil War is everyone is just terrified constantly. And the presence of someone like Wrangell, who, you know, like he's, he's definitely not someone who is like happy-go-lucky, but he is a normal, decent person. And he's kind of like you're the arc in the storm. And you know that at least in his presence, 
society operates normally in comparison to the total craziness of everywhere else in Russia at that time period. So going back, like the, the Mennonites, they were normal people, but they're also subject, totally subjected to the forces of the world because of their relative isolation. And General Wrangel, at least, you know, by the end, was extremely effective in kind of creating a normal situation. I think that that's the, uh, to kind of bring things full circle, uh, what people don't get is like, if you just check out, um, and you know, I, I know, I'm sure that this might get some flack, and I, I like, I'll, I'll qualify this by saying like, I live on a farm. I am not a big tough guy. I, you know, someone on Twitter was saying that was a huge pussy because they only bought a gun a few years ago. And it, it's not like a, you know, it's not a very impressive gun, I have to say. I'm, I'm a bad shot and I, you know, I couldn't fight a guerrilla war. But I think that people really overestimate the efficacy of like local self-defense forces in a huge titanic conflict. And, you know, the Mennonites, they were pacifists. But even if they had been armed, a village of a few hundred people, there was realistically very little that they could do to resist. Several hundred, and then it became several thousand, like, anarchist soldiers descending on them. And then the Bolsheviks came after that, and, they, you know, the, the Mennonites were actually relieved to have the Bolsheviks, even though the Bolsheviks would later end up completely ethnically cleansing them, because the Bolsheviks were at least an organized military force and were a little bit easier to predict than the anarchists. But anyway, there was realistically little that these, like, small communities could do to resist a, a giant organized force like that, even if it was an informal force like the anarchists. And General Wrangel was able to kind of stay in the game so long, despite being extremely outnumbered, because he had like an actual army and an actual like civilian government. And he like basically had his own little society, like a, a three-dimensional society. Uh, he wasn't just off in a hamlet. And again, I just hope that people constantly remember that like you cannot care about national politics, but national politics is always going to care about you. And it can have a really big impact on your life in ways that you are going to be unable to resist, even if you are this, you know, self-reliant and, you know, smart and decent person. When you're operating beyond a certain scale, like, you need to have your own scale to match that. And as unsatisfactory as many things seem today, right, like, you know, people, it's, it's kind of like, it's hard to defend things, right? People will make criticisms that are totally valid, like of the GOP or whatever. But just having that, you're so much better than not having it. Because if you stop having a national political structure and you stop having, um, you know, all these big institutions, you lose the ability to have any kind of organized resistance. And a fundamentally flawed one, like, you know, I'm not defending, like, most of the people involved in this stuff. Like, I, you know, I believe me, the criticisms are totally valid. But the solution can't be to just check out. The solution is, is has to be, like, well, we're going to continue organized resistance. We might are going to, like, improve our ability to do that as opposed to just stop stopping to think about it. Because, like, it does simplify your concerns a little bit to just check out a national politics. But that doesn't make the problem go away. And when I see people, you know, propose this like localism solution, it seems like it's just like it, it's not sweeping the problem under the rug. It's like, you know, you hide under the rug and you hope that the problem doesn't come for you. But they, they, they're coming for all of us and you can't escape any of these things, especially when you get into these like like psychic diseases, like what you saw with the Russian Civil War. And I think you see a lot of those in America today where people are losing any sense of their normal selves and they're becoming more and more depraved, right? A lot of the things that people propose now are just completely depraved. And 
is obvious, like a cover for like future violence, like with the, the border thing where, you know, the government basically totally abdicates its most basic responsibility to, you know, stop the like to to defend the border because, you know, all the very evil people in charge of the government want open borders. And Texas does a very normal thing, which is like, no, we can't just have any, you know, all these foreigners coming in. And then all these leftists were like, wow, this is just like the Civil War. Like we need, you know, General Sherman to come, you know, to come through there and like burn everyone out. And, you know, that's why people love Sherman is because Sherman inflicted very personal violence on civilians. And people are kind of chomping at the bit for that to happen. And it's understandable why people would like they see all these like clowns in the GOP and they see these totally depraved people and they want to max that depravity or they want to like either they either want to like check out or they want to like max the energy, right? Where it's like you're a scumbag and want to kill you. And, you know, it's reasonable in response to that to, to say like, no, actually, you're the scumbag. I'm going to kill you. And I'm sorry, guys. It's, it's one of those things where you have to kind of like mentally be above it and be like, well, actually, no, we're going to keep society normal. And if you're not normal, like you're, you know, we're going to deal with you, but it's, it's not, it's not going to be this like arbitrary, chaotic, like circus fight, like the, you know, Bukele, um, Bukele like totally saved his country and he didn't do it by becoming a dictator. And people criticize his legal system all the time, but like he probably has a, a much more robust legal system and much more fair legal system than most countries in, in all of human history do. And he is like the most, one of the most popular democratic we elected leaders of all time. So like, he's not like this like crazy dictator. He's operating within the current system and he's basically saved the system. And I, for some reason, people want to kind of like max the chaotic energy, but you know, to, to improve the situation, you don't need more chaos, you need more order. And I, I think that the, the kind of embrace of chaos or the, the apathy towards chaos is uh, kind of making the situation much, much worse. And so in the book, the, the anarchists show up, they do these horrible things, like truly horrible, like, a, you know, it's a very religiously conservative community and, and uh, there's actually a huge syphilis outbreak just because like pretty much every woman in these communities has been raped. Everyone's been enslaved. Everything has been stolen. The anarchists are eventually pushed out by the Bolsheviks and the Bolsheviks, they hate the Mennonites too, but they also see that the Mennonites like don't have anything left. So they're, they're like a little bit better, at least than the anarchists are. They never actually encounter the whites. Um, some of them, you know, some of the, the like Younger people, before the anarchists showed up, ran off to join the white army. But like the Mennonites have a very hard time uh, during the Russian Civil War, even when things are not only going well for them. And then after they stop being directly military occupied, there is a huge famine because no one can work the fields anymore. Because one, everyone's sick. But two, like no one was able to like um, plant before the winter because they were under military occupation. Everyone's like stealing everything and killing everyone. And so lots of famine and disease the communities come together again, like they have kind of what people propose it, like as the dream where it's like this religiously homogenous, like network of self-sufficient communities. And they could not hope to match the scale of the problem that they encountered. And in, in fact, it's, it's very sad The the author writes about how many of the Mennonites thought that like America or Germany or some foreign country would have to intervene because what was happening to them was just so obviously crazy, you know, they're these totally peaceful people and they're being treated in the worst way imaginable. But like, you know, it turns out no one was coming to bail them out. And eventually the author uh, reaches the conclusion that many of the Mennonites did, which is that they are surrounded by crazy people. And if they stay, 
bad things are going to happen to them. So they really need to like, you know, they've been living there for 300 years, but they, they got to go. And uh, the book actually closes with the, the chapter before, like the, everyone starts like thinking about leaving. And, you know, the author doesn't live in his hometown anymore. But the closing chapter is him just finding out that um, the anarchists came back. They went to his hometown, which he'd been relatively unaffected, uh, and they just killed it. We had pretty much everyone there and pretty much his whole family has just been murdered. And, you know, it's a you know, good of a downer ending, as you can imagine, but it just shows that the state of complete terror and arbitrariness that these people who seem to be in such a good position for like the chaotic breakup of society, how vulnerable they really were in that situation just because, you know, you can fight. Like, I think people have this fantasy of the apocalypse is like, oh man, these like three raiders showed up and the local good guy who's like this this ex-special forces person, he remembered his training and he was able to like kill them. But really like in like big political shakeup, you're dealing with these big organizations and in order to deal with a big organization, you need, you need a big organization of your own, right? People had all these valid criticisms of the white army, but once the white army was gone, like once Wrangel evacuated from Crimea, all the people who opposed the Bolsheviks just had no chance at all because they had no way to mount an organized resistance in a way that they could scale upwards, right? Like Wrangel has his own government. He, has, he can do his own foreign policy. He has, you know, foreign bank accounts. He has like lots of like reliable people who are pre-vetted and they have like a structure. And there were actually like years of mass protests after the Russian Civil War. And probably way more people were openly opposed to the, the Bolsheviks and the word in the actual civil war just because like most people were like normie lives and they didn't understand that like the, the temporary restrictions on freedom of speech and assembly and, and the normal political structure that the Bolsheviks had imposed during the war actually weren't going away. And so when they realized that they weren't going away, they started to protest. But you can just cross protests if you really want to. And if you don't have a way to mount a, like an organized systemic resistance, there's nothing you can really do about it. And so they had these huge mass protests and it meant nothing in the end. And like really Wrangle was the last hope and, you know, people just didn't support the big systemic effort when they had the chance. And so I, I hope you read the book. It's available for free online. It's, it's kind of rare in print. But um, I hope the book does a good job illustrating that like you might have this great like localist organization, but that... And a really bad situation has just come delaying the inevitable. Like if they want to get to you, they can. And like, believe me, if you are like, you know, someone who, who's relatively normal in America in, in 2024, like we want to get to you. But I, uh, you know, so I hope that the book lays a case for why that's not really a, a, an actual solution to the problem. And the real solution is like a systemic effort. And like, it's maddening for me to read this. Like, I have to say one of the reasons why I'm like not online anymore is I think that like I got into too many feuds. And most of the people I was arguing with were probably like, you know, they were probably okay, even if I, I didn't agree with them. And there are people who like say this stuff that I'm complaining about. Like, I, I don't have any personal animus towards them. And I think that like online discussions, like there's often a, a level of nastiness, which, you know, kind of brings everything down and, and hardens people's positions in, in kind of counterproductive ways. So like, I don't know, you just don't want to be a part of that. Like it is good to kind of check out of that because it's like non-productive non debate. But like, I, I think that what people are proposing when they propose like, oh, just, you know, focus on your local community, your church, your friends, is like the end of effective resistance, right? Because the only thing that, that keeps the, the wall, the, you know, the, the wall of water above us from crashing down uh, is the fact that there, there actually is like a serious systemic impediment to leftist overreach.
And if that was gone, like people, you know, people complain about like the constitution, like Mo constitution, but like as, as inadequate as, in, as it has been in preventing many of the problems that we face today, having that is a lot better than not having it. And I think that people think like, oh man, well, if only we didn't have all these restraints on our behavior, then I could really like give the leftists like what for, but you know, right-wing violence doesn't exist. Our right-wingers are not criminal types. And yeah, like I, I think that like people are, are dramatically overestimating what a civil conflict would be like for right-wingers. I think like people like law and order, they don't want to break the law. And like generally like they're not depraved people. Like I, I think that's the, the recurring thing that you see in all these conflicts where like they literally don't understand why the Bolsheviks are doing things because they don't think that way. Like, it wouldn't even occur to them to intentionally cause a famine and to intentionally destroy society because you'll benefit from that, right? Like, it's like people are trying to, like, work with the Bolsheviks who are this totally malevolent force because they're like, well, if there's a problem, why wouldn't you try to fix it? Because, like, they're decent people and they, they can't understand how very indecent people think. And so, anyway, I think that the, like, rural aid retreat option, um, it's pretty dumb, it's pretty silly, and it's just something that I think it's like a, a, a platitude because like it's something that's easy to grasp and it's easy to imagine how that would work out. And it, you know, I, I mean, I, I do have a great life out in a rural area, but I, I don't think that that's going to change the world and I really don't think it's going to save me. So yeah, like, I mean, it's just be, being able to put up a, a systemic opposition is, is really important and is actually critical. And, and to kind of move on from the book, I think that the, the trend towards this like localism stuff really betrays like I forgot and wrote this article. It's like the shrinking of the American mind, right? We're just like people are becoming like kind of small and petty. And I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that about everyone who just wants to have a, a, a like nice life. But like you see it often accompany like a kind of chauvinism, right? Like you, it used to make people really, really mad that I was like, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area and my life is totally horrible, right? Like it's actually nice in many ways. And, like, that, like, made people furious. On the one hand, like, I, I kind of did it, like, as bait, right, because I knew that it would make people pissed off. But, like, I don't know, like, if you really think about it, like, there are lots of people who live in all of these places. And even if it's, like, round zero for, like, shit liberty, they're not all bad. And I think that that's, like, a kind of changing thing where, like, people are, like, because they've been, like, abused for so long, because the situation is getting so bad... Like, they're, like, losing neuroplasticity. And so they start to, like, cartwheel cult things. So it's, like, you know, people in the cities, you know, the, it seems like a lot of obnoxious things emerge from cities. And so they're, like, well, all cities are bad. It's, like, I would never be a city slicker. But, like, 80% of the population lives in an, an urban or suburban area. And, like, then so 200 million people. And that's a lot of people who are on your side. The state where Trump got the most votes is California. And L.A. County alone has more Republican voters than, like, many red states, like the whole state. And so I think that a lot of this stuff is just an excuse for, like, chauvinism or just, like, being, like, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be, like, pretentious when I say this. Like, I'm not, like, an aristocrat or anything, but it's, like, the peasant mindset, right, where you're just hostile to anything that's not you. Like, I, you know, I, I will say, like, um, there's, like, a, you know, real length sense where you're behind this and I'm not going to belabor it, but there's this one guy who was always like, you know, you're a dumb city slicker. Uh, you would call me a federal agent um, because I disagreed with them. And I was like so proud of his like small town life. 
And, you know, a really sad story came out where it turns out that, like, you know, he's accusing me of being a federal agent, but his, like, kid is getting groomed by FBI agents in some, like, radical Discord chat or something like that. The FBI, like, raided his house. And you know, I hope that nothing bad happens to the kid. And, you know, I don't like this guy very much. I hope, it, I hope nothing bad happens to him. But it's just like, yeah, man, like, you can check out of this stuff, but, like, there is nowhere in the country where you can hide from, like, big social friends. You know, this is another thing people hated me for is, like, yeah, man, like, the, the, the um, you know, the, like, blue-haired shit limpery thing. The Internet needs that can get everywhere now. And you see it in small towns and, you know, it's in big cities. But, it, you know, people used to be in denial that it was in small towns, but it's in small towns. It's in homeschooled students. And, like, you can't run from this stuff. And I think that a lot of the, like, localism bay is, like, well, it would be much better if we just didn't have to think about it. But, you know, very sadly, there might be uh, – there might come a point where you really do have to think about it. So, like, you know, I'm sorry. Like, you can never check out with you. You know, there needs to be a systemic opposition. And I think that the localism stuff is kind of, like, people trying to, like, um, fake it till they make it and, like, live in denial about these things. Like, the, the guy – I don't – again, I don't want to believe in the point with it. But there was a, a really funny exchange that he had – where someone mentioned like drag queen story time and he's like, well, there is a, a drag queen story time within, you know, three hours of me. And someone looked it up um, because like he posted pictures of where he lived. And uh, there was one like, I think like 20 minutes away from his house or something like that. And it's like, yeah, this, this stuff is absolutely everywhere now. And you can have this totally self-sufficient community or whatever, but you can't hide from like everyone in society gradually going insane. Like there's nothing that can protect you from that. So you really like, you can't afford to check out. You can't afford to end this like effective resistance. So um, anyway, I, I hate talking about con contemporary political issues. If you're a free subscriber, like the, the podcast normally is like this. And I mostly talk about like movies and video games and stuff like that. But I was seeing this idea reemerge online, and I just think it's a dumb idea. I think it's a total waste, and I think people need to stop kidding themselves. But this is like a, a common thing for me. Um, there's a, a podcast episode on the book The Glorious Cause, which is about the American Revolution, which I, I think people really should learn more about just because it's revealing in so many ways. But a big driver of this big positive change on the American Revolution was the colonists that are all very different coming together for the, the early kind of coordination against the, the British um, colonial policy. And when they actually all got in a room together, they were really impressed with each other, right? And I, I you know, you can say like, oh man, I hate Californians so much, or I hate, you know, I hate people who live in the city. But I really do think that it takes all different types. And I think really the the kind of regional chauvinism, it's it's always kind of dumb. It's always kind of a cope. People come from everywhere. There are good people that come from those liberal, liberal, you know, liberal places imaginable. And it's never going to be like, you know, people, you know, there aren't like, like based like populations. I think that that's, that's another very funny thing that I think you see a lot of cope about where it's like someone will be very chauvinist about their region or whatever, but then we'll support like mass immigration. And like, it's like, oh, I hate Californians so much, but it, it's, it's, it's so nice to have all these like Guatemalan farmhands all the time. And it's really just like, it's like a schizophrenic thing. It's a way that they can kind of go with the current system without really opposing it. Really get, you know, when people say they hate Californians, they normally mean like white Californians. But yeah, if you're not like based places, um, there, there are based people. 
And it's it's always going to come down to like not where you're from or what you do for work. I mean, there's some things where it's like, yeah, you know, you probably have every right way you could do that for work. But, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of different backgrounds. Not everyone's going to be a plumber. I hate using the plumber word. The, the plumber dialogue went way too far. Um, but yeah, like people come from all different backgrounds. Uh, good people come from all different backgrounds and all different places. So when you when you get this kind of like local chauvinism. It always just seems like dumb and small. And, you know, again, please, um, I mean, at least li actually, no, don't don't listen to the podcast episode. If you're a free subscriber, like, fuck you if you're listening to this for free. Um, I think you're worthless. You shouldn't listen to any more of my podcast. You should leave immediately. Um, but for, for paid subscribers, re-listen to the, the episode of The Glorious Cause because there's so many good and talented and smart people who are out there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, the, the organization from the Hotline Miami game is like 50 different, you know, 50 blessings. That's the, the organization. It's like we, we really do have 50 blessings and we are um, fortunate in so many ways. And, it's, you know, it's, it's dumb to kind of adopt this, this very small-minded perspective about, well, I'm only going to interact, you know, I'm only going to care about the things that I encounter every day because, you know, you do you encounter a lot every day in these like unsane like trends of history and these social phenomena and things that like you know that i don't want to repeat the joe biden line but like your ar-15 can't defend you against like mass psychosis right like there's only there's only so much that like physical resist you know there's only so much that you can physically resist so i mean it's it's really important to maintain a kind of like unified, coherent resistance to all the bad trends going on right now, because without that, people are just kind of in the woods and they succumb to um, dead ends and arbitrariness and just, you know, general craziness. Like, you know, everyone should bound down the hatches. There are going to be a lot of people who see normal now who are just going to totally lose it in the next few years because they're not able to cope with the decline of society. And they won't necessarily be bad people, but Wrangle um, sees this in Always of Honor at her shuttle of his, his aide-de-comp after a bad meeting with uh, one of Danikin's staffers where, like, shadow uh, lobby, he says uh, they've lost their heads. They're no good for anything now. And again, like, once people, like, like get excited, like, I'm, I'm sure everyone has noticed this, where, like, someone will get excited about something, like, very animated, and suddenly they are just trapped in magical thinking and nothing can really puncture their delusion. And that's, that's going to be a real powerful uh, force on the American right. I mean, there are going to be all sorts of people who will love these like happy lies and fantasies that are being sold to them. And uh, yeah, like it's, it's a clear head, clear eyes. That's the only thing that's going to get us through this. So if you support national divorce, like, you know, be quiet, Nam, like, stop. Like, no, that doesn't make any sense. If your plan is like, well, I'm going to, you know, run up to the woods and, and I'll just be with my family and my, the members of my church and all that stuff, like, that might be a nice life, but that's, that's not going to really change the outcome. And that's certainly not going to prevent any bad stuff from happening to you. And, you know, people have to like, well, if, if that, you know, if the isolation doesn't protect me, then I'll just become a terrorist. And, you know, that's not a good plan either. Like, you know, I, I, I think that people have all these like cower fantasies and you need to let the air out of the balloon a little bit. And I'm sorry, you're, we're just going to have to be normal and smart. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be being normal and smart and calm that's going to get us out of this. Um, if you're not like a Mattapee Trump shill, you need to change that. Like you need to vote for Trump, whatever objections you have to him. Like, yeah, like he's, he's the, a unified systemic resistance that's going to do it. And if you like, you know, that's going to solve our problem and... 
I think that all the people who were like, well, there's no difference in, um, you know, it, it doesn't really matter who's president. The last four years have shown that that clearly is not the case. And like everything has clearly gotten worse. Yeah, whatever objections you have, you need to get over it. And if you, you know, you need to keep that to yourself, at least until after Election Day. So, yeah, just remember that when you have uh, big problems, the, the solution is going to be, you know, have to be at a pretty big scale. These problems have been building for decades, and it might take hundreds of years to really correct the damage. So you got to be in it for the long haul and always be thinking about what, what really is the best fast forward. And yeah, just, just remember like the, the consequences of losing are real. That's what happened to the German Mennonites. The people in the book, lots of them were killed, lots of them died in the famine. The worst stuff in the world happened to them. And then things calmed down eventually. But things calming down was actually them just getting ethnically cleansed by the Soviet government. Like they got completely ethnically cleansed. I think it was maybe 35,000 or so managed to relocate mostly to Western Canada. They were basically held hostage by the Soviets and foreign governments managed to get the refugee passes out. But the remaining Mennonites and a lot of their called the Baltic Germans over the next two decades or so, continuing until kind of the immediate aftermath of World War II, they were all forcibly displaced and killed and forbidden from getting like jobs and just like they're gone now. Like there, there are still a few around, but like they used to have a major role in Russian society and they were just completely ethnically cleansed over the, 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 two de the decades that followed the Russian Civil War. And all the, the places that tried to break away from Russia after the Russian Civil War, like for a lot of them, like it's understandable why they wanted independence, like Poland, right? Like Poland was not part of, definitely not part of Russia. And it's understandable why they weren't super eager to help the, the white Russians in their resistance to Bolshevism. But nearly all of these countries that broke away from uh, the Russian Empire after the Russian Revolution would be conquered by the Soviet Union. And as unsatisfactory as the white army was in many ways, everyone would have been much better off trying to make something work with each other than they were kind of pursuing their own interests independently. And it's, it's sad, and I'm sure everyone noticed this in Always With Honor, where like the closing chapters are kind of like a game of musical chairs. And Wrangell's force in Crimea is like kind of the last person standing when the music stops and they all have to leave for good. But all the people who were sitting in chairs, you know, who made their own separate pieces with the Bolsheviks, the Soviet Union would invade them in the next few decades. And nearly all of them were conquered again. So again, like big, big problems require big solutions. I know everyone hates each other. I know everyone's very different from each other um, on the American right, but like the stakes are real and uh, losing has real consequences. And, you know, you can, you can come back from a lot, but there are things that you can't come back from. So it's, it's worth it to survive. It's worth it to win. It's always worth it to win. So um, just keep that, you know, have that be uh, kind of at the center of your thinking in the, the tumultuous years ahead. And uh, yeah, so kind of closing thoughts. Um, I think the best way to resist like society going crazy is to just try to like improve your life as much as possible. Like take the chance to make yourself like physically healthy that contributes to mental health so much. Um, kind of put yourself out there. Like, I, you know, I, I've been, I'm not trying to like get on a high horse. Like I've, I've been in a lot of bad places before. I think a lot of people have. And uh, when you come out of that, it's, it's like waking up from a bad dream. Um, and just know that you, you can wake up and, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. Things can be normal for you again. It's easy to kind of get into like a despair spiral or be surrounded by people who are just angry all the time. And if you find yourself being angry all the time, just like stop whatever you're doing immediately and like get a new hobby 
uh, you know, check out, like, you know, maybe that's okay. If you're, if you're angry all the time, maybe that's okay to, like, check out a politics and just focus on approving your immediate circumstances. But, like, yeah, like, people, people uh, it becomes this, like, masturbatory despair cycle. And really, you, like, you have to be the, like, clear-pilled Prometheus alien, like, lofty and king-like, uh, spreading triumphantly all the time. You, know, you should be happy every day. And really, we are going to annihilate these people with beautiful feelings. Like, that's that's really what the, like, victory is going to be like. And, again, people think it'll be this, like, you know, everyone loves power fantasies these days, that, like, winning will be, like, this huge explosion of anger. But really, it's, I think it will be something, like, full of grace and uh, something that will light up the world. So, yeah, that's that's all I've got for this week. Uh, closing thoughts. This was a free episode. Uh, I, I just despise free subscribers. Uh, if you've been listening for more than an hour now and you're not you're not uh, paying for the podcast, like fuck you, man. This isn't a communist country yet, and I just like really. You see them on the street, like you know that they have like the free subscriber type, and they're like kind of fucked up, and they have like bad facial symmetry, and they they smell a little bit, and I think people are naturally repulsed by free subscribers. And like everyone notices it on them, right? Like it's like a disease. And the good news is you can cure yourself of the disease. It's only $5 a month to subscribe to the podcast. There are, I think, uh, 19 or 20 episodes at this point, And uh, most of them are paywall. So you get access to all the paywall episodes. And also several history articles that I've written about uh, kind of lesser known incidents in American history that are very revealing. And yeah, so uh, it, it really does help me out a lot. Uh, all paid subscribers are greatly appreciated. And all free subscribers are just the scum of the earth. And uh, one day uh, they will get their just desserts, uh, and hopefully that day will come very soon. And the day of reckoning will 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 arrive, and the, the free subscribers will be carried away by the storm. So yeah, that's all I got for this week. Um, I've got uh, new episodes coming out maybe the next few days uh, on uh, the movie First Nan with Ryan Gosling, and I'm still working on my review of the Russian Civil War video game Last Train Home, which is about the Czechoslovak Legion. Those will be paid exclusive. Again, free subscribers, I, I hate you. Yeah, paid subscribers, I, I'm sorry for making this one free. Uh, I promise you that that won't be happening in the future, and, and free subscribers will be getting the, the disrespect that they deserve. So anyway, thanks for listening, and uh, take care.